tonight, okay, y'all? <laughs> That's right. I'll keep my watch on instead like this morning, but anyways. Uh, take your Bible, turn with me to Psalm chapter 8. I appreciate the song sung tonight and uh, appreciate the worship we've had today. Uh, every Sunday really should bring us to a place of rejoicing. That The fact that we, we made it through another week, we're starting another week, if the Lord allows us to live through Monday, right, to Monday, I guess, and, and uh, the fact that we get to worship and see one another and, and uh, to experience God's presence and word, um, it, it's a privilege. I think we often miss that sometimes, but thankful for the day that we've had and uh, for you all coming back tonight. Uh, let's take your Bibles, turn to Psalm 8 tonight. As you're turning there, I want to open up in prayer tonight and ask the Lord to help us, to uh, strengthen us, and to uh, just give us something that we might need tonight that we can uh, prepare our hearts for the rest of this week and that we might just um, have a little nugget tonight to chew on as we end our week and begin our new week uh, and that the Lord would um, just get the glory out of it tonight. But let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. Thank you for each one that's here. Lord, grateful for the songs that we've sung this evening speaking about your grace and your goodness and the fact that one day we will get to, to see you face to face and to walk through heaven's gates, Lord. Uh, help us long and look forward to that day, but until that day, help us to live for you and to be busy for you while we're on this earth, Lord, to be busy about the things that matter and, and to not worry about the things that don't. Lord, I pray, God, that you would help us tonight as we open up your word, and God, that more importantly, you would open up our heart to it, Lord, that we would receive the truths that we need from it, that we would be prepared to close out one week and to begin a new one, Lord, that we would do so with uh, hearts and attitudes that are prepared to serve you and hearts and, uh, and minds that are focused on you, Lord. We just love you. We thank you for this time once more, and Lord, that you would get the glory. Guard my mind, my heart, my tongue during this time. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on Sunday nights, I've really quite enjoyed uh, so far getting through these psalms, and last Sunday night, I really enjoyed the, the surprise that we had with, of course, the prayer service and everything, and we'll do some more of those, but I just won't tell you when it's going to happen, so that way uh, you no know one will know, right? It'll be a real surprise then, but, uh, but I'm grateful for uh, what the Lord's doing. The Lord's certainly at work, but I'm thankful for these Sunday nights that we can uh, kind of look back at, at uh, some great truths of the book of Psalms and to see these words of wisdom as we've been talking about. I want to read for us Psalm 8 in its entirety. It's only nine verses. It's, it's not, not too long, and we will get through it all tonight. There's a really, uh, as we're going to see, verse 1 and verse 9 are going to be the bookends that um, it's called a chiasm, where it starts here goes this way and ends back here again, right? And, and that's a, something that's reoccurring throughout the book of Psalms. It, it is a poetic structure that the author uses. It, it's used to help in songs. It's used to help in reiterating the truth of who God is and what God wants us to know about him. And so tonight, really, truly pay the most, I mean, pay attention to verses 2 through 8, okay? But, but verses 1 and 9 really are going to bring everything home and together. It's going to show uh, everything about what this psalm is all about and really something for us to dwell on as we enter in this new week. Verse number one says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, and that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider my heaven, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the pass of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. I don't know if you caught on to the theme or not, but in verse 1 and verse 9, we find the theme, the, the truth for tonight. 
O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Glory to his name. That is the purpose of this psalm, all right? Well, let's pray and get out of here, y'all. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding, right? Some of y'all might have been a little anxious for that. But uh, tonight, the glory of his name in verses 1 and 2, I want to deal with that first. And then there's going to be a big chunk, verse 3 through 8, that's going to show God's glory in man. What that looks like. How God has made us glorious creatures. And as we've been talking about in the book of Genesis going through there, um, and we're just blazing trails through that thing, but we're, we're looking and talking about how God is, God's peak of creation is man. Not because uh, you know, we're not sinful, because you, know, you, know, you and I are sinful, right? We're sinful creatures. But at the time, when Adam is made, he's the peak of creation because he is a living, eternal soul. When nothing else was. Everything else, uh, you know, granted sin hadn't come in, death hadn't come in, but he is considered to be a part of an image bearer of who God is. You got giraffes and dinosaurs walking around, and they're cool, majestic creatures. However, they're not made in the image of God. And there's the difference between beasts and between mankind. And that's why he's going to show in those verses, specifically 5 down through 8, that it is man who God has given this glorious assignment of ruling over the work of his hands. Let's begin in verse number 1. O Lord, our Lord, we find the personhood of God, that he is the unchanging eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God who none can compare. O Lord, our Lord, the, the word Lord itself, as we say over and over again, every time we read our Bible, we should put that in our mind as we read it. Sometimes we skip over the names of God that are given in Scripture, even just the simple ones that just say God or Lord. Now, we should certainly stop and pause and reflect on the fact that this is not just a name like, you know, Joe Schmo or whatever, right? This is this is the name of who God is. This is the God of the universe, and this is how he has chosen to reveal himself to us because his name means everything. It is his name that is excellent in all the earth, that is uh, glorious, that is the name that represents not just a name that we ascribe to him or we talk about him, but rather all of his character, all of his attributes, all of his glory, all of his honor, all of his power, all of his authority. The word Lord is literally the idea of one who is sovereign, one who rules, right? To use it in a sentence, if you will, if we were in the spelling bee, to lord over somebody, right? It means that you're ruling over them, right? Now, that can go good or bad. However, when the Lord lords over his creation, he does so in a perfect, in a pure, and in a just manner. There's never anything that God does in creation, in all of eternity, that is um, sinful or wicked or unjust or not fair. Now, there are those, of course, who accuse God of such. But how can that which is formed say anything to the potter? How can the clay speak to the potter? Why have you made me thus? How come you've do it, done it this way? And what have we got to say to the one who's spoken all things by, uh, as verse 3 says, who has ordained these things, who has made these things with his fingers, the moon, the stars, and the whole of creation, and has formed and fashioned man? We find that he rules the heavens and he rules the hearts of men. The author here, we believe, of course, is, is David writing this. We don't know the specific time of David's life, but this is certainly a time where David is pausing and reflecting on the glorious nature of who God is. If David is going through a tough time, it's a great time to pause and reflect on who God is. If David is going through a good time in his life, it's a good time to reflect on who God is. It, because there's never a bad time in our, in our life, in our walk with the Lord, to pause and reflect 
about the goodness and the nature and the name of our Lord. And to dwell on the fact that it is Lord, our Lord. David knows who he is as the God of the heavens, but as well that he knows he's the God of his heart and that he's a man after his own heart. One commentator writes, God's name gives concrete form on earth to all his sublime perfection. When we hear and when we read God or Lord or Lord God, we have to immediately think of not just a name, but we're thinking about the God who not only spoke the world and universe into existence, but the one who spoke through the power of his spirit to holy men who wrote down these scriptures that you and I would be able to read them and to see his divine revelation, to know his law, to know his words, to know his work, and to know his will in our life and in all things. We find that his name shows us as well, specifically for David and the children of Israel, that this is the covenant name of the covenant God of Israel. Jehovah or Yahweh, this is the covenant name. The covenant is a promise, that he is the promise-keeping, promise-making God. And when he makes a promise, he keeps the promise. You and I, we find the vast difference between us and God in that truth alone. When we make a promise, we sometimes keep it. We try to keep it, but we don't always keep it. But when God says, I will or I shall, that means he will and he shall. There's no question. You certainly take him at his word because his word is truth. And because of his name shows forth all the truth, all the glory, all the holiness, that he will not go against his word or his promises. He will not go against his name or his character. Everything in all of existence is held by his name because of it is representing his character, it's who he is. We find the position of God being our Lord, this phrase. That is something that we continuously see in the book of Psalms, I believe for a reason. The psalmists are often going through a, a difficult part in life. They're often going through, as David has throughout many of the psalms that he writes, where he feels as if everything is coming against him. Nothing else could perhaps go wrong. It's just, this is the end of all things. This is just the worst, the worst. And I would say, talking and listening to most believers today, we go through that too, don't we? There's days that we spend more days feeling like that than we don't. And so what do we need? We need to remember that we have not just a God in heaven who is so far away that we can't talk to him, but rather he is our Lord, not just ruling over the heavens, but ruling over our heart. David rests in his name, which is to trust in his character and his promises. That's what we do in times of trouble. That's what we do in times uh, that are mountaintops, that are our peaks and in the valleys in every part of our life to rest and trust in the name of who our God is. He is the God of Israel. It's specifically that of David and those who read the psalm believing by faith. They immediately know as they read, O Lord, our Lord, they know that this is the Lord who had not just created the world, who had called out Abraham, who had made a people when there was no people, who had then let them go into captivity, not for their uh, punishment, rather for their benefit to draw them out some 400 years later and to give them more than they ever have, to give them a population of a million plus people to take them through the wilderness and to deliver them to the promised land as a picture of what the church does today as we're going through, not through a wilderness, if you will, in this world, but we're headed to a promised land. We find that God walks with them, that he is there for them. He is the one who establishes the law. He is the one who had promised the Messiah. He is the one who sent his son to be the Messiah, enrobed in flesh, the eternal God who was there with them, who uh, had seen all their hurts and their heartaches, who had uh, prepared the, the manna and had prepared the law, who had 
even fulfilled the law in his own lifetime and ministry. That is exactly who comes to mind when they read this. This word is one that shows that he is the ruler or the governor. One commentator writes, the Redeemer King of Israel is the Creator. His name, Yahweh, is glorious over all the earth by virtue of his creative activities. What is marvelous is the great king's revelation of his glory in and thereby his self-involvement with his creation. He, the glorious one, has endowed the earth with glory, end quote. We find that God does not just make the world and all of creation and then just let it go and doesn't take part of it, but rather what happens in the garden. We know that he walks with man, the peak of creation. He instructs him. He knows him. He has fellowship with him. Does God do so because he's lonely? No, he does so to have fellowship and to ultimately one day redeem these people unto himself that he would have an eternal fellowship with these people who were not a people, who did not exist except for by his power, by his might, by his eternal decrees, by his strength, by his promises and perseverances in their life. We find as well that he is involved not just in Israel's life, but in David's. This encourages David, especially in the times that he's been going through as he's been reading the Psalms and these difficult moments to know that God still cares for us. And we're going to see that being addressed in the next few verses at a very famous verse, verse number four, right? What is man that thou art mindful of him? And what is the son of man that thou visits him? All right, we'll get to that in just a, a minute. We find then the expanse of his glory. Now, when we say the glory of God, we think of the intrinsic glory, which is all of who God is. It is the Shekinah glory. It is the attributes the total awe-inspiring of understanding all that God is right his justice his wrath his love his grace his mercy his holiness all of those things then we find as well what is called ascribed glory it is where we give him glory we give him glory because of his glory does that make sense so the reason why we praise God is because of who he is not just the things he's done but simply at the root core because he alone is God Therefore, he's deserving of such. In the expanse of his glory, it says, How excellent is thy name, first of all, in all the earth. Now, this is an already and not yet statement. His expanse of his glory is in all the earth because he made the earth. The heavens and the earth, the creation declares that there's a creator and groans about the creator and knows in its heart who he is. But his name is majestic and excellent to all those in the earth who are faithful to him and give him praise, especially for, for David here. But there will be a day when all of creation will one day bow their knee, and there will not be a single soul left on the earth who will not humbly bow before him and uh, praise his name and give glory and honor to his name for all of eternity. Now let me ask you this. We see that he says, How excellent is thy name in all the earth, and thy glory above the heavens. Is there anywhere that God does not rule? Absolutely. God rules at all places, at all times, throughout all of human history, throughout all of eternity. That's who He is. He is the only one who has a right to rule because He is the only God. He is the one that created all things, so He has the right to rule over all things because He's the one that made it. Right? It's, it's, it's His. It belongs to Him. Not only did He build it, but He bought it by the precious blood of, of Jesus Christ, His Son. And so we find that this all belongs to him and his glory and his rule goes not just in the earth, but as well, he says, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Notice he doesn't say, set thy glory in the heavens, lest we begin to worship the moon and the stars and the sun. 
but he says you've set it above the heavens. Meaning that it goes far beyond our comprehension. Even scientists today are absolutely in awe of that. As they look and they study and they see with giant telescopes and all these things, they look out to the expanse of the universe and they see it's just like it just keeps going and going and going. No matter what man does, they, they send out uh, telescopes out into outer space to try to get glimpses deeper and deeper into space. And what they continue to find is that there are more and more galaxies far beyond our comprehension or understanding and that there is a God who has formed and fashioned and has held them all in existence since time began. And that is who the Lord is. So His glory goes far beyond even what this universe can even hold. The universe itself cannot even hold God, let alone His footsteps or the train of His robe, if you will. We find that above the heavens, the earth is so full of the glory that even the heavens cannot fully contain the power and might of who God is. But it it doesn't just stay up and above the heavens or just on the earth, but it says it goes down to those who are lowly, even to his enemies, even to those who are lowly and and, and, uh, just seem weak and, and frail. He says, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings. It's the idea of infants, out of those who are weak, those who are incapable of taking care of themselves. Because if we're honest, in the sight of God or before God or in comparison to God, you and I are nothing but infants, aren't we? We're in total dependence of someone else for our breath, for our body to function, for our money and clothes and everything. It, we're dependent totally upon God. We are infants uh, before Him. We are but nothing. And he says, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, hast thou ordained strength. Now, you might have a strong toddler, but you normally don't have a strong infant. <laughs> Not like in this sense. Ordain strength because of thine enemies and might have still the enemy and the avenger. That gives hope and promise to David. But I want to turn uh, briefly to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21 for just a moment. There's a couple of verses here. As Jesus comes into town, he's about to face the whole long week where he's going to be inspected and accused and tried and to face the cross and ultimately at the end of the week to to resurrect from the dead, to bring us the gospel, to literally go and do the gospel, which is to die for our sins and to raise again. But as he comes into town, you guys know, starting in Matthew um, 21, we've got the triumphal entry, and he comes riding in. But we get to verse 12. There's the cleansing of the temple. It says, And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple. And overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. The reason why he does such is not just because they had turned it into a dollar general, but it's because they had literally begun to um, coerce people and pocket money that they did not belong to them. They had started to overtax people. They were starting to say, oh, you're wanting to do sacrifice? Well, guess what? The price last week for these doves was, you know, two shekels. Now it's 30. Right? You, are you going to pay it, or are you just going to not sacrifice to God during the week of Passover? Huh? Right? And so, of course, they're going to price gouge and all these things. So they had become a, a house of merchandise, a house of, of thieves, if you will, because they were stealing from their own people, mind you. He says in verse 13, And said unto them, It is written, Hey, we prayed that before this morning, didn't we? Right? <laughs> My house shall, call, shall be called the house of prayer. We've heard that before too, haven't we? Look up, see? A house of prayer. We're not just making this stuff up. It's there. A house of prayer. He says, but ye have made it a den of thieves. 
And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them. Notice they don't come for anything else, but they just come to find Jesus. And you can imagine this. It would be, it would be like this. You could picture in your mind almost that if those back doors were to burst open, and then we have blind folks who are uh, literally groping their way on the pews and on the walls to try to find their way up front to Jesus, and, and the lame who are limping along or dragging themselves across the floor to get to Jesus. They're not trying to get to, to go to the den of thieves, or they're trying to get to the house of prayer. They're trying to get to know God. They're trying to find healing and restoration. That's what we, you and I do really when we gather as the body of Christ. We're, we're gathering as those who are lame and blind who are in need of healing. And, and it says that, and he healed them. There was no uh, presupposition. There, no, there was no, hey, you got to do this, or you got to do that, and then maybe I'll heal you, or you got to give X amount of money. None of that stuff. He, they come, they heal him. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things, I love what Matthew calls it. Matthew calls it wonderful things. Why? If we saw that taking place today, boy, even us quiet Baptist folks might just shout, right? Even, even a good old Presbyterian might shout at that thing. If there were healings taking place and wonderful things of God, we would certainly rejoice. But look at what happens. It says that they saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were sore displeased. That sounds more like us, doesn't it? Something good's happening on in the church and we're sore displeased. <laughs> Something didn't go quite our way or we didn't get the money or the attention like we thought we should or, you know, the color of the carpet in the temple is just not quite right. And we're sore displeased. It's not just displeased, disgruntled, but it's sore displeased. That means real, 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 real upset, right? It means that they're ready to take their ball and go home sort of upset. But they don't want to because they feel that that temple belongs to them, not to the blind, not to the ones who are lame, and certainly not to the children who are crying out to Jesus, still yet, Hosanna to the Son of David. They've been crying this before he even got into town. Hosanna, save we pray. Hosanna, save we pray. And look at what they say in verse 16. And said unto them, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus said unto them, Yea, have ye never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? And you can even see if you've got a reference Bible, Psalm 8.2. And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. Interesting phrase I want to look at for just a moment is the word children. Immediately we think of the word children, and we think of little children, don't we? Jesus is the way that he's looking at them. It's not just these little children, but it's the children of Israel, the children by faith. The children who were of flesh, but are now children of faith, who are crying out, Hosanna, save, we pray. They are trusting in Jesus as their Messiah, and they are believing and expecting for him to come in and to set up shop, to set up his rule, especially as he's just come in and drove out all the money changers and the den of thieves, and they're certainly expecting this to take place, but instead in just a few short days, that Jesus is going to die as the Lamb of God. What we find here, though, what we have found in Psalm 8, too, that out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, out of those who seem weak, out of those who are blind and lame, out of those who are weak in comparison to the world that the Lord has made strong, the Lord has given strength to conquer over enemies, the Lord has used them to bring forth praise. The ones who give the most are normally the ones who have the least. The ones who do the most for the Lord are normally the ones who don't have the means or ability, but they're simply willing. God takes the blind and the lame 
and builds a church. God takes the weak children who are just simply crying out Hosanna and what sweet praises that is. May we be as such tonight. Now as we turn back to Psalm 8, we move to verses 3 through 8 and we're going to see God's glory and man. Some very great truths here. He says, When I consider thy heavens, in verse number 3, the work of thy fingers, the moon, the stars which thou hast ordained. Believe we have lost that since we've gotten television and cell phones and everything else, the art to just sit back and consider the heavens. Now, one thing that I think every time I talk to a shut-in, we talk about how the world is so different. The world is so different compared to how it used to be when they were kids and even when I was a kid and how even I've seen things I'm going, I didn't even think this would even happen. And here we are. And how quickly and terrible the world has changed for the worse and towards darkness. And what we find here and that I talk with these shut-ins about, as I say, we both always normally agree on this, is that one thing that we've lost and one thing that we need more of is front porch sitting. Right? Y'all are mountain folk. You know about front porch sitting. Maybe back porch, side porch, closed-in porch, right? If you, you got that kind of enclosed porch money, I don't know. <laughs> but you sit outside and what do you do? You sit outside, you, you talk, you, you, you converse with one another, and you look up at the sky. You hear the birds. Maybe watch the deer eating your apples that you laid out for the squirrels and stuff like that, right? You look out and you see the, the sun start to set or the sun start to rise and you see the stars come out or you see the stars disappear and the moon have disappeared. You see and you begin to ponder and you think, not, oh man, I better get going. You think, wow, what a mighty God to have made these things. You ponder and consider the heavens and you consider, as he says, the work of thy fingers. The Creator has established two spheres of rule, heaven and earth. He established the celestial bodies in the firmament and has given them the rule over day and night, Genesis 1, 17 and 18, whereas He appointed human beings to govern the earth, Genesis 1, 28. He says, They are thy heavens and thy fingers because He is the Creator. Now, the word fingers here, this is what in the theological world we would call an anthropomorphism, all right? That's a $2 word there, all right? So you can go impress your friends now. Anthropomorphism is that we are ascribing spirit being these, and he's rather using what we would know, fingers, to understand his work. When God speaks the world into existence, he simply speaks it, and yet we understand and try to wrap our brains around him taking his heavenly fingers, his infinite fingers, and molding and shaping and forming and fashioning the earth and those same fingers that form and fashion us in our mother's womb. It's mind-boggling to think about how the same hands that create and uh, hold the world and measure out the water in the palm of his hand and the span of the universe from fingertip to fingertip, the same fingers that form us and give us personalities and fingerprints and everything else that he does. But it is the idea of showing us that God almost like a divine sculptor has sculpted this world. A sculptor who will take a piece of marble and make a, a statue like the, one, the famous one of, of David, uh, that, that we see that it, it takes so much time, so much effort, so much intricate detail and work for the sculptor to look at one big old block of marble and then slowly but surely chisel away a masterpiece. 
God didn't take a piece of marble. He just simply spoke. He simply moved and it happened. He created because he decided to, because he wanted to, and it brought him glory. And he was making a people who would fellowship with him and, and would bring glory in him. We find that something that was formless and void is now full of order and life and beauty. One, one commentator writes, in contrast to God, the heavens are tiny, pushed and prodded into shape by the divine digits. But in contrast to the heavens, which seems so vast in the human perception, it is mankind that is tiny. You can imagine this. We have God over all and above all things, over all the earth, over all the heavens. His glory reaches that far and then keep on going. It's infinite. We can't imagine eternity, let alone the infinite glory of God. Then we've got the heavens, which you and I see. To, the, to God, the heavens, the stars, the sun, the moon, and the billions of galaxies that are literally trillions times trillions of light years away, that's a long way, mind you. You're not going to get there. You can't get there from here, sort of far. And that far out that to him, the stars in the universe is nothing. It's just there. It's, it's small and insignificant. Yet to you and I, looking down here, when we sit on our front porches, we look up and we go, I just see my little galaxy I'm in. I see my little solar system that I'm sitting in, one part of this one galaxy, and there's billions times billions of these galaxies everywhere. And it humbles us real quick to see how small we really are. It shows us how small we are and how big God is. Then we could put it even more into perspective. You could look at the ant. To the ant, we are the biggest thing in existence. Maybe besides an oak tree that it might crawl up and down. But to us, we look at the ant and what do we see? We just see a tiny little ant. We could squash or use a magnifying glass or just let it go on its way. and We look and it's just nothing to us. We know that there's billions or billions times billions of those too, much like the stars. And to us, it's just nothing. Well, how about you go a little bit further? The ant, if he could see an atom, the atom would be infinitely small to him. And the atom, if he could look to the ant, he would go, wow, that's the biggest thing I've ever seen in my life. We see the perspective. And then he says here, what is man that thou art mindful of him? The son of man that thou visitest him. When we realize the vastness, not just of the universe, but of the God of the universe, we realize how small we are, we come to this verse, it should make us rejoice. What is man that he is mindful of us? We are but dust and dirt. We are truly even more than that. We are cosmic traitors. We are ones who go against the God of the universe who made us and we go against His holy order and rule and authority through our sinfulness. And yet, He's mindful of us. That the God who is literally keeping every atom held together in the billions times billions of galaxies throughout the trillions times trillions of light years away throughout all of creation is mindful of you. The psalmist later going to say that his thoughts are many toward us. He doesn't just go, oh, yeah, you know, I know, you know, uh, Stephen's there and JL's there and, yeah, they're doing whatever they do. No, his thoughts are many. And he's mindful of us. To be mindful means that we're in remembrance. 
were in his thought, were in his mind, were even, I would say, more so upon his heart. As grand as the universe is in comparison to God and how lofty the Lord is, he is still mindful and visits mankind. One writes, the constellations lose their austerity and the stars their cold stare and the knowledge that the Creator stoops to raise up His frail image to whom He entrusted the rule of the earth. That He's not just mindful of us, but that He visits us. And the greatest visit ever is that when He put on flesh Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, lying in a manger, who comes not just to give us a nice Christmas story, but to grow up and to visit His people, His covenant people, who He called out when He called Abraham. And when He promised to Abraham, I will make you a people. There was no people. I'm going to make you a people. And they're going to span, and they're going to, be outnum- they're going to outnumber the, the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. That's that God. He's visited us. And that even today, like David in our hurts or in our triumphs, he is still yet visiting with us today. And there's coming a day where the visit's going to be a real long one. It's going to be an eternal visit. Our visits on this earth seem short. And, and once more, going back, when you talk to a shut-in or visit a shut-in or, or really anybody, it could be even a, a relative, and they go, well, I wish you could stay longer, right? We always hear that. There's going to be a day where when the Lord visits us, we're not going to have to say, well, I wish you'd stay longer. Why? Because we're going to dwell with him and he with us. David looks forward to that day. He says, for thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Man gets to see and experience God's glory in creation. God has given glory to man for his own glory, that we would be his image bearers and his glory givers, if you will. His glory declares. Man gets to rule as the glorious creature of creation over all things. Now, the phrase, a little lower then. I want to address that for, for just a moment. The one commentator deals with this linguistically and in the language. He discusses, says, little can sometimes mean for a little while in both Hebrew and Greek, which is the sense probably implied here in the epistle, right? in this, in this uh, portion here. That is, for a little while we are lower than the angels, meaning right now, where are the angels? Right? They are in the heavenlies. They are even amongst and around the throne room of God. Even right there in the midst of His burning, fiery, holy presence. Yet you and I right now, we're just, we're there, but not there yet, right? It's already, but not yet. Already see it in heavenly places, but yet we're not there yet. And what church is supposed to be is to be a glimpse or a picture of that moment in that time, a gathering together with the saints and feeling and experiencing the presence and the glory of God in our lives. But we see that we're one day coming to that. We're approaching it. Spurgeon writes, A little lower in nature, since they are immortal, and but a little because time is short. And when that is over, saints are no longer lower than the angels. James Montgomery Boyce writes, Although made in God's image and ordained to become increasingly like the God to whom they look, men and women have turned their backs on God. And since they will not look upward to God, which is their privilege and duty, they actually look downward to the beasts and so become increasingly like them. This is why the psalmist says, I consider the heavens, I consider the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, I consider who you are. 
Why? Because we're not meant to be like this world nor the things of this world. He declares in verses 6 and 7 and 8 that we're to have dominion over these things, not be like them. And what has evolution done to us today? For 100 plus years, we've been taught that we're just a higher form of animal. We're just a, a, a another species. We're just animals. And that's not the case. We're not animals. We are image bearers of God who are eternal beings. We're not just a, a part of God's creation. We're the, the peak point of it. Why? Because we bear His image. We are just passing through this earth. We're the, an animal, sadly to say, is going to die, and that is it. You and I, the moment we die, we're going to be in one of two places for all of eternity. It is to be with our Lord and in that same place where the angels are gathered on the throne or to be cast into outer darkness. They'll be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. There is no middle option, no halfway option, no redos, no, well, I'll get a second chance or get a, uh, another time around here. It's, it's a done deal. Well, while we're here, though, we have dominion over it because we're not just animals. We are image bearers of God to rule and have dominion. As his image bearers, we rule as he declares for us to rule and decrees for us to rule because that's what he does in and of himself. He rules perfectly and justly. However, you and I, unfortunately, don't because of our sinful fallen nature. But in the beginning we were meant, he says, Thou hast made us them to have dominion over the works of thine hands. It is what you and I have referred to in, in the study of Genesis, the, what we call the theocratic kingdom, that God has given us this world to, to rule over, to look after, to take care of. However, Adam being the the federal head of mankind, fell into sin. And of course, by one man's sin and disobedience, death comes and sin comes. And so all have sinned and all have disobeyed and all are born that way with a sinful nature. He says, All sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the pass of the sea, we're to have dominion over it. Why? Because God gave it to us. So go fishing. Go hunting. We're to have dominion. We're, we're, we were given that right and that divine right and authority to do so. However, the issue at hand is that because of our sinful condition, sinful nature, we have perverted God's creatures and God's creation and the beauty of God. We have even taken, as Romans chapter 1 says, these creatures and fowls and these uh, beasts, and we have begun to worship them or become more like them instead of becoming more like God. If we are His image bearers, who should we mirror? Who should we represent? What should we look like? It should be that we look like God, not like the world, let alone the animals of the world that are but temporary, that are not eternal, that certainly just go about with their own lustful flesh to live and to breed and to one day die, but to conquer as much as they can. We're called to a higher calling than that. And it brings us back to this chiastic point from verse 1 and verse 9, this bookend, if you will. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. David understood that the position of man in creation says far more about the glory of God than saying anything about the glory of man. There are those who could read verses 6 through 8 and say, well, I can do what I want then. God gave me dominion over everything so I can do whatever I please with this creation and God gave me rule and right so I am somebody. But if we go back just a couple of verses before, then we see once more we're not anybody because we're just dust and dirt over a cosmic universe that is far greater than we can imagine. 
We realize what's more how small we are, but in realizing how small we are, how sinful we are, we realize who God is and how good He is and how vast and infinite and holy He is. Understanding it all should make us praise God, not man. Looking at the stars should not make us go, look how good we are. Look how big we are. No one that looks up at the night sky says, wow, I sure am something, ain't I? When you look at the stars, what do you say? You say, wow, those sure are something. But let's be more specific. It's not those sure are something. Let's look past those stars and go, he sure is something. Because he's the one that made it. He's the one that spoke it. He's the one that sustains it. He's the one that one day is going to make a new heaven or new earth for you and I to enjoy where he'll dwell with us forevermore. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more curse there. We'll get to fully and finally enjoy his creative work purely and perfectly and properly in every aspect and in every way for all of eternity. Which is why the psalmist here and why you and I tonight should be able to say, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. This also gives an imagery of the fact that there's going to be a day where all will say that, where all will bow their knee and that all of us will truly be able to see that in his kingdom on this earth that he will rule and reign, that his name shall be excellent, lifted up, high and lofty forever and forever. One, one writer writes this. He says, For man's dominion over nature, wonderful though it is, takes second place to his calling as servant and worshiper to whose very children the name of the Lord has been revealed. Our greatest calling is not that we get to say, oh, well, God called me to take care of farmlands and animals and, and go fishing whenever I want to. No, our great calling is to serve God by taking care of His creation, by taking care and being image bearers and taking that seriously and as well as worshiping Him in all that we do, whether it is taking care of animals on the farm or the fish of the sea or whatever we do in our life, it should always bring us back to the place where we're serving the Lord and worshiping the Lord because, O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is Thy name in all the earth. So what we take away from this tonight is this. One, that God is good, gracious, and glorious in all of that He is and all that He does and will ever do and shall ever be. Secondly, that God rules over all things at all times. There is nothing in the earth that escapes His eye. There is no star or meteor in the heavens that go unnoticed by Him. And when we think even further that He is mindful of us and visiteth us, you and I, and I've hope in that tonight to know that God is very much with us. And lastly, that God made man for the high purpose of revealing His glory and receiving glory in the work of man in His creation. All things are by Him, through Him, and for Him. It is His world. And to think that God allows us to take part in it so that we might give Him glory. This should humble us to bring it to where whether we're just looking at the stars at night, whether we're going about our daily work life, whether we're sitting on the pew, or whether we are down to our last penny and our life couldn't be any more worse. That our goal and our job in life is a high purpose and a high calling of saying, O oh Lord, our Lord, 
how excellent, how great, how wonderful, how marvelous, how majestic, how righteous, how holy, how beautiful. And you can keep on going. How excellent is thy name in all the earth. And as well, it should be in our hearts tonight. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for who you are. Lord, as we see from this psalm that you are a God who, while you hold all of creation in existence, you are still mindful of us tonight. Help us to be mindful of that, Lord, as we are preparing even for the nightfall and we'll see the stars out, that we'd look past the stars to see your glory, to see your goodness, and to see your power. Lord, that we would have hearts that can declare how excellent is your name in all the earth. Lord, that it may be said in our life and about our life that we are ones who bear your image and and live for you and live according to your word. And Lord, that we as well, like those stars, shine forth your glory and your creation and all that you've done. Lord, that we might point others to know you, that we might point others to your glory so that they too might give you glory in all things. Lord, we love you. We thank you much more for this time. Prepare our hearts for this week. Lord, use us as only you can. Lord, prepare us and protect us from uh, the enemy which seeks to destroy us and divide us. We do pray as well for our requests and for those who are struggling tonight, God, that you would meet their needs. And Lord, that we might just take these truths to heart to help us through this week and to help us through this night. We love you. We thank you once more for this time. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope you all have a blessed evening. I got you all out a whole like seven minutes early. So Merry Christmas. And.